I was thinking a lot about what it meant to live in a culture that was so like relentlessly positive all the time to the point that it would be trying to defy death itself and believe that it could actually do that. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Leonard Cohen, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. My guest today, Susan Kane, has been greatly impacted by Cohen's work. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Quiet, which changed how the world views introverts forever, and a new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, which re- recently reached number one on the New York Times bestselling list. Susan is also an award-winning keynote speaker who has delivered two TED Talks with millions of views and the founder of The Quiet Revolution. Susan, thank you for joining us on the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. It's great to be here with you finally. Yeah, I'm glad we finally made this happen. So I know you've shared a lot about your sort of life and history in the books, uh, and I know there's some different ways to becoming a, a best-selling uh, author. Um, you know, Wall Street lawyer is not the most typical <laughs> uh, path. So, t- what was your sort of early career? How did you end up there? And and what was the transition point where you decided to to leave? Well, I mean, I had wanted to be a writer since I was four years old, so that was always the initial plan, but. Um, you know, I graduated from college and my father took me aside one day and was like, well, it's really romantic to want to be a writer when you're a teenager, when you're in your twenties, but when you get to your thirties and forties and you can't make a living, it probably won't feel as romantic. And as he said that I was kind of fiercely resisting, but the words came in. And so I thought I probably should do something more practical. And so I went to law school and the crazy thing about that is that I, in so many ways, I was such an unlikely lawyer, but almost I bet you that, wrote good briefs, right? I guess, I, well, I wasn't that kind of lawyer. I, I <laughs> okay. was a corporate lawyer. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I feel like because I was sort of there as a cosmic visitor, um, that I actually liked it more than most people did for a while. Um, and then I just started to really burn out and... And feel like it was just altogether too much. Um, but did, but I was, did you have a Jerry Maguire moment, or? Well, I had a huge moment. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I wrote about this in the book that um, I, uh, although I was like on the one hand burning out, I was on the other hand, you know, on partner track and really trying hard to make partner. But there, there came this day where um, a senior partner walked into my office and said, "Well, you're not actually making partner." And at the moment, I felt like my whole world was collapsing around me. But I ended up leaving the firm two hours later. I just mm-hmm. said, like, can I have a leave of absence? And I, I just left. And then a few weeks after that, I um, I ended a seven-year relationship that I had been in that had always felt wrong. And so like, my whole life was in this state of freefall. I was in my early 30s, like no career, no love. I'd wanted to have kids, didn't know what was going to happen. Um but everything kind of turned upside down in a really good way after that. And I found myself um, a week later signing up for a class in creative nonfiction writing at NYU. And, uh, you know, it was like a night class. And I sat there in that class on the very first day and was like, this is it. This is absolutely what I need to be doing for the rest of my life. I had no thought that I could ever make a living at it. I told myself. And what, and just so we could timestamp it, what, what year yeah. was that? Good question. That was um, 2001. Okay. So yeah, I had been working at this law firm right across the street from the World Trade Center. Um, and I left a few months before 9-11. And um, yeah, so it's 2001. And, um, and I told myself the goal was to get something published by the time I was 75. You know, so so what I actually did was I like reorganized my life so that I would have some freelance income coming in through this little business that I set up. Um, but my writing was just going to be my beloved hobby at the center of it all. Okay, so you take the writing course, mm-hmm. and it was quiet. The first book was the concept that became quiet. The first thing you started working on. 
No, not at all. Um, I spent a few years where I was writing memoirs and poetry, plays and essays, all different stuff. And I somehow never tried to publish um, any of that, except for a few poems I once tried to get published, but basically not. And then I started working on Quiet and turned it into a proposal and, and sent it in. But that, but that took three or four years. And, and, but didn't, wasn't there something between the proposal? Didn't you go back? And so you had a deadline, right? And then they went back and said, and then redid the whole thing. I, I remember hearing you talk about this somewhere. Oh yeah. Well, that was, that was after the proposal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay. So I, I put together this proposal and, um, and sold the book and, but then I had to go and write it. Cause you know, with nonfiction, you only have yeah. to write like one chapter, you know, in order to sell it. Um, so yeah. So then I went off to write the book and I spent the next two years or so doing it. And I handed in my draft and I knew it was terrible. I was like, not happy with it at all. And my editor, thankfully was also very candidly not happy with it. And she said, you know what? start from scratch, take as much time as you need, forget the official deadline on the contract, take the time you need Mm -hmm. to get it right. And I was absolutely thrilled because like, I didn't really know how to write a book. I'd never written anything at that point. I knew the vision that I had in my head and I knew that it was going to take me a really long time to do it. So I was just so thankful and relieved that she was giving me all that time. What was fundamentally off if you had to put one thematic like, did you just totally change the direction? Was it really the quality of the writing? Was it, it didn't come together? I'm curious for those of us who have written a bad draft and want to know how to, how to improve. Yeah, gosh. I mean, I think it was, it was too thin. The phrase that just came into my head to your question is the phrase thin gruel. It was, it was too thin. Um, I think I wasn't trusting my own instincts, you know, because I personally am so interested in like, the nitty gritty of lots of research and like really, you know, like really getting into ideas. I wasn't trusting that my reader would want to go there with me. Interesting. So I made, I think I made it too light and too thin and it wasn't substantial enough. So that's why it wasn't just a matter of like fixing sentences. It was like the whole thing had to be rethought. So number of years later, quiet publishes runaway breakout bestseller. I think so many people I know, you know, reacted probably as you like emotionally that, that they never felt like understood and you helped them feel understood and what their place was. I, I think one of the things that that book did though, at a large scale was redefined uh, what it, what it meant to be an introvert. When I think a lot of people mischaracterize that, like, I, I, I think, I think your definition is, is interesting. So how, how do you define an introvert and how do you, before quiet or how how did you see that mostly mischaracterized? Well, I mean, even before quiet, there there was the standard pop culture definition of that being an introvert is where you get your energy from, um, you know, and that an extrovert would derive more energy from a social situation, whereas an introvert would deplete energy that way and get more energy from quieter situations. And I, I actually really like that definition. You know, we could get into what they're real under, lying neurobiology is, and that's interesting too. But that definition works in a pop culture way. It's just that sitting alongside that and maybe dwarfing it really was the idea that an introvert was somebody who was fundamentally misanthropic, um, you know, really didn't like people, um, was like, you know, a potential unibomber living on the edge of the forest. Yeah. Shy, which is... Shyness and introversion aren't the same thing. I actually talk about them both because I think shyness is also an important quality that is undervalued, but important to understand that it's different from introversion. And and while people tend to have these like dominant sort of preferences, I would say, right? I mean, there's there's obviously around on the spectrum. I'm curious, like obviously you don't want to live permanently in the place of natural discomfort and, and misalignment, but do you think it's important for introverts to get a little more extroverted. And then conversely, which people don't recommend is not enough is extroverts to get a little more introvert. I, there's a lot of advice about why introverts need to, you know, get mm-hmm. out there. There's less advice about why extroverts need to go for a quiet walk and, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk a little less sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and and I do think that we all need to um, sometimes transcend our natural inclinations. Um, but the, the best framework that I've ever seen for thinking about that comes from the work of Professor Brian Little, who's a personality psychologist. And he talks about how like you don't want to be 
stepping outside your comfort zone just for the sake of it, or just because you think there's something wrong with your way of being, um, you should be doing it in the service of a personal project that really matters to you, whether it's a work project or you know something you're doing for someone you love or a cause or whatever it is. Um, so in the service of things that really matter, yeah, you know, do you think step outside your comfort zone, but you're doing it from this place of of strategy and, and of self-respect. So as soon as you're done accomplishing that goal, then you get to come back and be yourself. Um, right. So I always say to people, like, if you're, let's say you're going to spend your morning giving a speech and that's something that's very enervating for you, like you should be scheduling into your afternoon calendar, like to go get a massage or take a walk or, or you know, take time for yourself and recharge. And that should be as sacrosanct a part of your calendar as the speech was earlier that right. morning. And so I say, I mean, I've, I've read some perspective and sometimes it's part of the role, right? Like an introverted CEO might want to sit at home and write and think, but they need to reach out, connect with people that, that don't know them. You know, similarly, uh, an extroverted CEO probably needs to listen at some mm-hmm. point and not, you know, to a room and not talk. So sometimes I think it's even, even the role a little bit that requires, you know, pushing the boundaries of that a little bit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like when I say that, or when Professor Little talks about a personal project, that that would include a role in general. You know, yeah. that requires you to to do that. But I, but you know, because I also say to people, like in choosing careers, like on the one hand, to know that almost any role can be to some degree adapted to what your your own nature is. You know, like when the way one person does the CEO EO role is really different from the way another person does it. And at the same time, to like choose a career and choose a company and choose a cultural fit where you're not in misalignment too much of the time, because right. who wants to live that way? Right. No one wants to live in a permanent state against thing that is unnatural, but then we all need to kind of push the edges a little bit. What? Um, so, I mean, you got a tremendous response to, to quiet. I, again, I think a lot of people felt like they had a, a voice and a name and thing that they couldn't explain before. What were sort of the common themes that you heard from people about that? that what a change for them. Oh gosh. I mean, there's one word that I heard all the time over and over again. Um, and the word was permission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was permission to be my true self, permission to be me, which is huge. Like I I don't think people who are extroverted realize the extent to which introverts are just constantly like denying their own preference of how they want yeah. to spend their time, you know, and, and how instinctive and automatic and unconscious that becomes because you're just doing it always. Um, So permission is huge. And then what comes with that is this weird paradox, like a great paradox that um, that people write me letters about all the time, that the more you feel that sense of permission, the more successful you become in the outward facing world of job interviews or, you know, leadership or giving talks or whatever it is. Um, because you're now navigating it from a perspective of deep self-respect and everything's different when you act that way. Yeah. And look, the last two years have been a fascinating flip-flop in the default. You, you, I can't remember if it was LinkedIn or Twitter. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, you wrote a very funny thing on social media around like, you tell me I have to work from home and can't have meetings, can't go talk to people. Like, like I feel like I won the lottery. I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but I, you posted something very funny. But it is interesting, right? Where the default flipped and a lot of introverts suddenly felt like comfort zone and extroverts felt like tortured, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, having yeah. to be at home. It was just a, it was a very interesting societal flip all at once. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now as um, workplaces shift more and more back to in-person to the extent that they do. Um just how we navigate all that. Cause I, I heard from a lot of extroverted friends too, who were telling me that for them too, like some of the pandemic restrictions came as a welcome relief because like, even for them, they had been too much 24 seven, too much on. Yeah. The one I've heard from people, even I would say sort of the gregarious outgoing is I, I, I'd say one out of a hundred people I've talked to say that they want to go back to the level of travel, you know, that they yeah. were doing uh, before where, the, you know, just being on the road and seeing where they just realized the the exhaustion, no matter what side of the spectrum. Yes. On. Yeah. No, I, I've definitely been feeling that because I, I had one of those crazy travel lives before yeah. the pandemic. Right. And that does not bring you energy. <laughs> 
No, I mean, <laughs> though, you know, there, there's aspects of it that I miss. Yeah, definitely. But it's like on balance. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know the speaking world is interesting. I, I think there is a real in-person premium now versus uh, virtual. That I've seen as people have sort of put a put a price on sleeping out of their bed for you know two or three nights in a row. Yeah, yeah, and everything that comes with that. Though, I, I mean, it's still the case that like the people who I would meet out on the road, like some of those are some of my closest friends. Um, yeah. The people who I met over the last decade, you know, just yeah. who were fellow speakers at conferences and things like that. Um, there's something really unique about that. So, so in Quiet, you referenced uh, a really interesting study by the historian Warren Sussman, who argues mm -hmm. that. As a society industrialized and urbanized, we moved from a culture of character to a culture of personality. And that's really kind of default mode today. Can you explain what that is and whether you think that this is a, a permanent change or is this something that that you think cycles back and forth? Yeah. So he did this really interesting study where he looked at the self-help books that had been written in the, in the 19th century and compared them to the ones of the first half of the 20th century. And in the 19th century, the ideal self that was put forward by these books was used words like um, uh, honor, um, dignity, character, inner worth, uh, things like that. And the self-help books of the 20th century were more about charisma, magnetism, likability, salesmanship. You know, so it was a very different idea of what the ideal human looked like, and it had to do with the fact that we were moving out of small towns where people would live and work alongside each other for their whole lives. And, and so you would judge a person based on what their true character was as it was revealed over time. And then moving to a world where suddenly you had to be constantly presenting yourself to people who had never heard of you before, you know, in a sales call or an interview or whatever. And then at the same time, you had the growth of, of cinema and you'd have these larger than life movie stars who on the weekends were kind of showing you how it was done you know, how to be magnetic. And, and that's what he called the culture of personality as distinct from this earlier culture of character. So what are we living in now? I'd say it still is very much a culture of personality. Um, a little more even me, I think, ask, right? Like more sort of narcissistic and it's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because with... Uh, yeah, it's been interesting to see the evolution of social media because during the early years of technology it felt like things might be going in a different direction. Because if you remember when, when technology was all like about words that you were typing into the computer, yeah, there was more of this sense of like that the internet was a place you could go to express your true self to many people at once. Whereas now like it, it's turned into more, you know, the place, it's not an original idea, but the, the place to, express your curated self, you know, your shiniest self, you're the most magnetic version of yourself. So yeah, I'd say we are still, still in that culture of personality. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, there's, there, I think that there's another piece of that a little bit, which is, yeah, I mean, everyone's seeing right the top 2% and they're not seeing the rest. But I think for a while, people really felt like it was super democratizing. It leveled the playing field. Everyone had a voice in their opinion. There's a little bit now, though, of like, my opinion is is right and you're not entitled to another opinion right so it's mm-hmm. it, the megaphone effect is less around you know leveling like the one thing that I, I heard a ceo say that which i think that was true in the internet when everyone went home during the pandemic and everyone was on zoom it sort of democratized the organization right the little ceo was in the same one by two <laughs> inch box, box. As, as the other person everyone was on the same page and i think in terms of giving everyone a voice, we had that. But now, you know, there's now I think a lot of it has moved to again. It's it's it if I have a voice, then your voice, <laughs> your voice or your opinion doesn't count rather than advocating for my position, which is getting us into a lot of um these sort of, you know, win win rather than a dialogue, more of it, it has to be a zero sum position around something. Yeah. Yeah. And the way um everyone's now getting sorted into all these silos of the people who agree with a over here and the right. ones who agree with X over there. Yeah. It's simpler. So, so I, I read something that you said about your writing process um, and I'm interested both how it works and then maybe a little bit, maybe some of the not danger of it, if that's the right word, but downfall. So, mm-hmm. so that you, you have an idea for a book and then you spend kind of years, right? A long time mm-hmm. looking at the world through that lens, you know, mm-hmm. and try, you know, the examples and stories. So I'd love to hear some of the examples of what that looked like for quiet or bittersweet, but also how does, how does that not lead to confirmation bias? How do you avoid confirmation bias? You know, cause I know there are a lot of people, uh, similarly, you know, in, in, in other words, take a narrative to every situation, right. And you can apply it. So I'm, I'm wondering how you balance that as you're going through that process. Cause like I said, you take a long time from sort of concept to implementation around thinking through some of these things? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's because maybe it's the nature of the books that I do. Um, I mean, I guess you could say my books are making an argument. They definitely are, but I, I think of them or experience them, experience them more as explorations, you yeah. know? So I'm like trying to explore like what, A thesis. what, what yeah. yeah. What bittersweetness is, you know, what, like what, how how it's been manifest over the centuries or how does it show up in our culture? So confirmation bias isn't so much the point for Got me, it. or it's it's not so much the um, you know, the the quicksand that I have to avoid. For me, it's more like the deeper I can go, the richer the exploration is gonna be. That that's how it feels to me. Yeah. Do you, and I'm curious, what's an example of one or from Quiet or Bittersweet where you you found something you just didn't, <laughs> you found an application that really surprised you. You didn't, that, that sort of supported that hypothesis. I mean, I don't know if the following surprised me exactly, but well, I, I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't have known when I first started Bittersweet that I was going to find myself, for example, as I did um, at a conference of life extension enthusiasts. Huh. So like, you know, suddenly there I was in San Diego. I, I ended up devoting a whole chapter of the book to the whole question of, um, the pursuit of immortality. And, you know, and I spent time at this conference of all these scientists and uh, other people who have devoted their lives to the quest of trying to help us live forever, or at least to live for hundreds more years healthily, um, you know, and just like exploring all the different questions that come up when, when, when you decide to make that your goal. Yeah. So that was an example. So it's like one day I was there and then, you know, another day I was, attending a, a retreat led by a Sufi leader whose who's teachings on Sufism I found really interesting. And so I'd gotten to know him. Um, so it's it's pretty varied. How do you even know where to look for the... How, how do you design the process of where to even... That just made me think of how did you end up at those two <laughs> events? Like, what, what was the process that brought you there? Is it... Do you let one trail lead to another or do you do you sort of plot out where you think you should look? No, I very much let one trail lead okay. to another. Like that's why I say I'm like walking around the world just looking through this lens. Right. So it's like like with Sufism, 
I think the way I got interested in it originally, if I remember correctly, is that um, I went to hear a talk by someone who was, she was just giving a talk on questions of meaning and transcendence. And I was just interested. I don't think it had anything to do with book research. And in the talk, she mentioned that she had grown up in a Sufi household. Um, they had actually, she and her family uh, led us a Sufi meeting house when she was growing up. And she was just talking a lot about Sufism. And I got to know her and her family and I learned more about it. And I was just fascinated by it and realized how much it had to do with what I was writing about. So boom, you know, now I'm pursuing that trail. Um, and I don't remember even how I got interested in life extension, but I do know that I was thinking a lot about what it meant to live in a culture that was so like relentlessly positive all the time to the point that it would be trying to defy death itself and believe that it could actually do that. Mm. And I, I thought that was just a really interesting example of kind of like that outer reaches of that kind of a culture that we're in. So for that, I, I asked a friend of mine if he knew people in that world and he connected me and they were super interesting. So I followed that path. All right. Well, we're going to dive into bittersweet uh, very shortly after we take a quick break uh, from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-Club.com. Dot com, or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. And we're back with Susan. So I think, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is a very, <laughs> sets the premise very clearly, how sorrow and, long, and longing uh, make us whole. What was the hypothesis? Or, or I know this was personal for you. So how, how did you, when did you start playing around with the concept? And what, what was the original hypothesis around, hey, maybe, maybe this is a important Thing that we should look at? So, I mean, in some ways I started playing around with it um, back when I was in law school a gazillion years ago. Um, and I was, I was in my law school dorm one day and some friends were picking me up on the way to class. Um, and when they got there, they found, when they got to my dorm room, they found me listening to bittersweet music. Um, it was probably Leonard Cohn, like, you know, like blasting it out on my stereo speakers, which they found really amusing. And one of my friends asked me why I was listening to funeral tunes. And at the time, like, I just thought that it was just a funny remark. Um, and I laughed and we went to class, but I couldn't stop thinking about it afterwards. Like, why, why it was that that was a good subject for a joke, but also like, what did I love about that music so much? Like, what was the music saying? And I started just asking that question. And I, I started realizing that there was there like the narrow question of what is it that sad music is telling us? But, but it was a much deeper question than that about like that there's this whole bittersweet tradition. It spans centuries. It spans all the different cultures, um, all our religions, our artistic and literary traditions, our psychology now and our neuroscience ask this question of like, what is it about the fact that joy and sorrow always go together and how is it that they that 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 fact leads to creativity and connection and transcendence so aristotle was asking this question 2000 years ago of like why it was as he observed that the great poets and politicians and philosophers of his day all seemed to have melancholic personalities like why was that what was that connection and that was really what i wanted to understand so one of the things uh, that, that from the book that I think was a uh, interesting, courageous decision. So you decided to tell a, a deeply personal story about relationship with your with your mother and and how that changed. Um, did you go back and forth on whether to include that or not, or was that uh, was that a hard decision, or was that an easy decision based on what you were trying to you know show in this in the book? It was a really hard decision. Um, I mean, 
It was an e- easy decision writing wise because you know from the book that I've been I've been trying to write that story since the time I was in college. I mean, I, I talk in the book about how I did write that story um, in a creative writing class that I took back in college. It was called The Most Passionate Love. And the teacher um, read the story and she said, you were much too close to this material. You should put it in a drawer and not take it out again for 30 years. Huh. And that's what I did, you know, but now the 30 years is up. Um, so yeah, I've been trying to write that story for all these years, but at the same time, like, although I'm a writer, I'm also a really private person. So yeah, I had to struggle a lot with whether to put that out or not. Um, but in the end, I decided to. I'm guessing because of that too, you've had people probably unprompted share incredibly vulnerable stories with you. I think it models it for other people is what I've seen. So many, so yeah. many people, so many people. Yeah. And and a lot of people specifically stories with their parents, you know, that they maybe had never told anybody before. But yeah, you know, my my feeling about writing in general is that the whole point of of writing or like any any art form, any communication form, that the whole point of it is to express the stuff that is not so easy to express in the chatter of everyday life. You know, like the real stuff, the real stuff. There's something about these media that gives us a space to to express what's real and you know deeper and true. Which takes more than 160 characters too, right? It takes more <laughs> totally. than 160 characters and, yeah. and it usually takes like a willingness to um, to not always be private and uh, and to be more vulnerable than feels comfortable. Well, another big theme in the book, I, I, you talk about, um, and, and this just dovetails a lot of stuff I've been reading and writing about lately, but there's the pressure to be positive. And there's a great part where you talk to this group of Princeton students about just this pressure to be absolutely perfect. Like what, what is the, this has been going on for a while. I actually, our town showed this movie. I don't know if you came across this in your thing called the race to nowhere, like 10 or 15 years ago when our kids were younger. And I watched this about all these kids, you know, working like crazy to get into college. And that was the end goal and burning themselves out and thinking like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And 10 years later, it got worse, not, not better, uh, which was kind of amazing. I, I feel like they should show that uh, everywhere. So what what is the antidote for this pressure to be perfect? Because it occurs to me that some of the most, you know, you know, the Einstein quote, like it, it actually, all this stuff seems counterintuitive to some of the most successful people who are willing to like try and fail and their failures were celebrated. And particularly in the academic environment, it is it is about perfection. It is, you have one thing less than an A on your transcript and cross these schools off your list. It just seems like a terrible standard and, and not actually encouraging people to take risk and be vulnerable, right? And some of the things that you talked about. Yeah, exactly. So wait, is the question, what is the antidote to that? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were some statements. <laughs> going, yeah, what... What what might have a chance of changing this? I guess yes. Which is also what is the what is the antidote to this pursuit of perfection? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, we need some kind of like collective decision to be restart. <laughs> yeah, restart and like deciding what a good life is in a different way, and and also deciding what a meaningful contribution really means. Like what what I thought of as you were describing all this is uh, this essay that the Professor Helen Vendler put on the Harvard website some years ago. I don't know if it's still up there, but it's this brilliant essay calling on Harvard to rethink the way it does its admissions. You know, and and she's pointing out that like very often the people who make the truly great contributions in their fields and in arts and beyond um, are not people who are like across the board amazing at everything and always perfect. Right. They decided they didn't like science and were really good at creative writing, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and like, and, and not only do they know that about themselves, but it's like, they care so much about the things they love that, that it offends them to spend unnecessary time on the other things that they know are not like. There's a valedictorian study on this, that, that they under, underperform because part of being a valedictorian is having to do well in all of these things you ostensibly probably don't care about, right? Do so you mean it's that like, they underperform later in life? Yeah, they or? underperform later in mm-hmm. life because it's not not relative to 
where they were and not, not that they end up homeless, you, you know, right. and yeah, no, but I it, know it is saying. a, the concept of it is conformity and right. conformity is sort of against excellence in one discipline, sort of as you're, as you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I don't know how to like shake people out of this stupor. Um, you know, there's that other book, Excellent Sheep that was written yeah. by uh, William Dur- I don't know how you say his last name. The Coddling of the American Mind talks a lot about this too. If you haven't read that book. Yeah. 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 So I don't know the antidote, but like, but I think the the positive vision that could lift us out of this is just like the amazing things that happen when people really do you know, follow like the acorn that's in them um, to make it turn into an oak tree, you know, not with this be perfect at everything idea. But but the, the concept of effortless perfection that I encountered when I was doing the research for Bittersweet, I was talking to these students at Princeton and you know, it's not only about um, getting the best grades and everything, like they feel this pressure with every aspect of their lives. Like they have to be thin, they have to be attractive, they have to get into the right club, they have to have exactly the right mix of social skills, they do have to uh, do well academically, and they have to do all these things while making it appear that it's all effortless. So, you know, it's like adding insult to injury. What, but what it just made me every time you said one of those, I wanted to say, or what? Like, is it is that parental mm-hmm. pressure? Is that societal pressure? Like, who who are they letting down? What is the consequence that they fear in your estimation? It's internal pressure. Uh, they're letting themselves down. I mean, you could say they're letting all these people down. You know, letting their parents down, letting their friends down, whatever. Um, I think that it's social pressure that is put on externally, but but it's so internalized that they feel it, that they're the ones driving themselves on. But I, you know, this ties, I think, to a huge theme of what you were trying to say. And I, we could talk a little about kind of toxic positivity soon, but I, the, the shift in, and what they wrote a lot about in that book, the shift to uh, accommodative parenting, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years and the shift that I think like things should be easy, <laughs> not mm-hmm. hard, right? Life's been pretty hard <laughs> for a long time. And I think Sometimes the expectation you wouldn't make it through the day. What I've seen now is the expectation that people get really angry when something doesn't go swimmingly according to plan. Mm -hmm. I I think it's a very different philosophical approach. You know, you have something like COVID. Oh, I had the right to, you know, live without a disease or a pandemic, or this isn't supposed to happen. You're like, wait, but if you look at history, like that, you know, that's not true. So how, you know, sometimes like, a job is not fun. Sometimes things are hard. I, do you think it's an expectation lens? We, we've shifted a little bit towards the expectation that things should go right or be easy or that this just isn't part of the equation? Yeah. I mean, that, that was part of why I wrote Bittersweet because, um, I mean, my view of life and that the only way to live like in a deeply hap- happy way and a, with a deep sense of meaning is to accept that in this world, like that, this is what life is. Like life has its joys. It has its sorrows. It has its hardships. It has its um, wonderful moments. That's, that's the deal. Um, And yeah, as you say, I, I I think especially for people who are growing up in relatively fortunate circumstances, there's a feeling that real life is when everything is going well and that when something like COVID comes or, you know, any other kind of hardship or whatever, that's like the detour off the main road. It's the aberration. And and you you have to deal not only with the pain of the aberration itself, and it is painful, um, but you're dealing with all this resistance that you feel because you're feeling like it wasn't, this wasn't supposed to happen. Right. That that is the key line, right. That this wasn't supposed to happen again. If you, if you zoomed out and double, you know, looked at history, it happens pretty regular with the current, just less, probably than it used to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Or like, you know, even during the time that like, you know, many people in the U S might remember as like a really placid and easy time of like the nineties or something, you know, but you, you zoom the lens out to other countries and it wasn't, it, there were terrible hardships going on in the nineties somewhere else. Like this is, this is, yeah. this Reality. has always been the story of humanity. <laughs> yeah. But there's something, there's something in that story beyond the fact of the mere acceptance of it, there's something in that story that has the ability to bring us closer and to bring us together because we're all, we're all in this together. It's, it, this isn't really an ideal reality, you could say, um, but 
we're all in it together. The fact of mortality, you know, the fact of plague, the fact of all of this, we're in it together. And that's, that's incredibly bonding if we would allow it to be. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Yeah. And I think, right. You see a lot of the expectations of a perfect job, a dream job. Look, we've had a lot of people, you know, leave our organizations over the year for the dream job and some have found it and some have, you know, what they thought was the dream job in a week was clearly the nightmare, you know, job. So it, it is, uh, you know, it's hard to, uh, I mean, I, as you said, I'm sure you love writing. You love it. It doesn't mean there aren't some weeks where you hate writing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, the, the downside of it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you quit and throw it all out and, and walk away. I think it's embracing that as part of the process. Well, it's an interesting example, the whole question of dream job or not. Cause so yes, um, like the writing career that I now have and adore, um, it comes with all kinds of things that are difficult, as you say, but because I feel like I'm situated in exactly the right place, doing this work that for me is really meaningful I don't care at all about the difficult parts. I just right. do them and don't think twice about it. Whereas when I was a lawyer um, and didn't feel that same sense of meaning, I, I still soldiered through all the difficult things because I'm just sort of trained to do that. Um, but it was much more like existentially offensive, let's say, to have to do them. You know, and I lived for my vacations in those days. Uh, we got five weeks of vacation a year, and like my whole life was centered around that. Whereas now, I hardly like to take vacation because. I right. love so well, much you what knew I'm doing. you were in the wrong place. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 So I think there's something about like, yes, on the one hand, for sure, you have to weather all kinds of difficulties, but but you have to first be situated correctly. Yeah. It's interesting. That's a balance. My next Friday Forward is on this topic. I just had a long conversation on with Marshall Goldsmith and, and his new book, The Earned Life. You know, and, and and this sort of happy when paradox. I think you know he thinks it's the great Western lie of I'll be happy when X oh, happens. Yeah, yeah. So that's really good. There's a balance to what you're saying, right? There's there's it's a, knowing you're in the right box and in the field. But again, it sounds like you're you're if you don't at some point get happy where you are, like then the happy when thing is, is you know becomes almost a unsolvable uh, promise that they make. I I remember uh, Ryan Holiday wrote an article kind of about this, particularly how high achievers just move the bar as soon as it's achieved. And he said he just wanted to make the New York Times list, right? He had five books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, then, and then I can't remember which one it was that it was number one. And his, his, his agent called him. He was mowing his lawn. <laughs> he got the call. <laughs> you know, he went back and mowed his lawn. Like it didn't have the euphoric, life-changing uh -huh making you happier moment, you know, he probably was like, all right, what's the next goal? And so that, that, that happier when trap, I think is a lot of us fall into. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I noticed that also like with bittersweet, um, I was thinking about that, like this moment where it hit number one on the bestseller it, list. It was and a bittersweet moment. No, no, no. It was like, <laughs> yeah, no, no it, but it was like this total moment of euphoria. And my husband and I, like we had this evening of euphoria. And I yeah. remember feeling like, I don't want to go to sleep tonight because I know by tomorrow it will have worn off, which is true. So small. I stayed up till, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Like the whole hedonic <laughs> treadmill thing. Um, but, and that's all true. And it did wear off, but I do think there's a thing of like, you know, that, that cliche about, the point of it is the journey. Yeah. I know it's a cliche, but it's so true. So I like the journey I'm on. So right. it's okay when it wears off. So I, I think that's the fundamental question of like, 
Yeah. If you don't um, enjoy the practice, right. Yeah, uh, like, yeah. You, you know, I, I think Tim Ferriss said this once in interviews with athletes, like the ones who are really good enjoyed practice, right? Because that's the 98%. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I you know, one, one other thing in there, uh, in, in terms of this concept of what do, what do you think organizations need to do maybe to avoid toxic positivity and, and create more room for employees to kind of express feelings of bittersweetness more openly. Yeah. Or just feelings in general. Yeah. Um, you know, so like with all cultural shifts, I think it's really helpful for it to be modeled from the top. Um, so for organizational leaders to be sharing just their own experiences, which doesn't mean, you know, as I say, I, I say all this as a private person. I'm not, so I'm not yeah. calling for everyone to feel like now you've got to just divulge everything to all your colleagues. I don't mean that. Um, but you know, but to think about it and, and there are moments where you could share, well, this is actually the truth of my experience right now, yeah. or to create spaces for other people to do it perhaps anonymously, you know, in, in schools they have, they sometimes call it like a parking lot for young kids yeah. where they'll have like a thing on the wall and the kids can just write down what they're feeling, their emotions, what, what they're doing that day. I can imagine anonymous spaces in a, a workplace where employees are, or where colleagues are encouraged to write their truths. Um, it would be really interesting to see what people say. Mm. Um, you could do the same thing on chat rooms and Zooms, you know, with an anonymous function of like, how is everybody truly feeling this morning? Um, and maybe someone goes first, you know, you make sure someone goes first, writing something other than pumped or thrilled or whatever. Yeah. And, and to your point, my experience is in any of these exercises, the highest leader that goes first sets the bar for everyone else. I, exactly. I was in, in a group about an experiment where this was done to show a facilitator did this to show this to the group. So he went around a group, like, tell us something you don't know about each other, about yourself. Other people don't know, you know, he goes around, I'm allergic to peanuts. You know, the next person that comes around second, he goes, we're going to do another round. Second time I, I was abused and left my house when I was, you know, 14 or whatever it was stories. The second time around totally different. So that, yeah. as you said, that person leading really mm -hmm. will set the bar for, for the entire team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's also, there's this incredible video um, that I've come across. It's, it was put on by the Cleveland Clinic to help train their caregivers in empathy. And the way this video works is it, it takes you through the hospital corridors past all these random people who you would no normally walk past and not really think about, except in this case, there are little captions telling you like thought bubbles, huh? Yeah. Or, or not thought bubbles, but telling you what the people are actually going through. Yeah. 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 That's and sometimes they're happy things. Like sometimes it's like the person just found out they're going to be a father for the first time. Yeah. Um, but then there's another one of like a little girl and it says she's, she's saying goodbye to her father for the last time. Um, you know, and you can't, you can't watch this video without tearing up and yeah. having that heart opening sensation. But what I've started doing since watching that video is reminding myself like when I'm at the grocery store, I'm like, well, what are that person's captions? You know, the cashier, what's her, what is her caption right now? And just the simple prompt of, of thinking about that yeah, really transforms the way you interact with in your everyday exchanges. Yeah. And I think this is, that is needed in so many more places in society on again, whether, whether you agree with someone taking a second to understand or perspective or what might be, what might be going on. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cycle of violences that go on, you know, in society. Well, that doesn't make it okay. It's interesting to understand where these things come from and why people react, how they do. And it does require a, an empathetic stance. Um, I'm going to try, is that video online somewhere? That'd be it really is, interesting. It to, is. Okay. Yeah. If you can't find it, let me know. But if you Google Cleveland clinic, empathy video, it should come right up. Okay. We'll find that and link to it. I think that'd be, that'd be really interesting. Sounds like a good Friday forward prompt. Um, re related to that, um, you know, I could see someone reading the, the book uh, and, and wondering, you know, if we need more melancholy in a world that seems to be full of <laughs> anxiety and depression uh, these days, but I know you have a very distinct opinion on this, thinking of particularly the difference between melancholy and depression as distinct. Can you help explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so these are diff very different states. And one of the things that I'm hoping the book will do is, is, uh, is, is highlight give that, a little, yeah. <laughs> yeah, give a little nudge to the field of psychology about 
needing to make this distinction because they are different. And yet, if you like type the word melancholy into PubMed, all you're going to get is a bunch of articles about clinical depression. Um, and yet there is this state of a kind of like happy and productive melancholy. And I actually developed a quiz along with the psychologists, um, David Yaden at Johns Hopkins and Scott Barry Kaufman. And we developed basically this scale to measure how prone people are to this bittersweet state of experience, like this state where you're aware of the joy and sorrow and everything. And what we found is that people who score high on this state also score high in measures of um, absorption, which predicts creativity, and in measures of um, uh, wonder and awe and spirituality and transcendence. So these are incredibly productive. Oh, and, and I should say two items of full disclosure. I mean, one is that this quiz is quite preliminary, like in its studies, um, though it's echoed by all kinds of other studies that are in the field. Um, second thing is people who score high on this quiz, there's a moderate correlation with anxiety and depression. And that mm. actually doesn't surprise me. It's either moderate or mild. I forget which offhand. Um, but anyway, I, that's not surprising to me because it seems to me that kind of the outer edges of melancholy of like where it goes too far is where you tip into um, states of extreme anxiety and depression that are not productive or happy or creative for anyone, but that there is this gigantic sweet spot state that many people experience that gives rise to some of the greatest out creative outputs in civilization. And that's what we need to be experiencing, understanding, bottling, etc. Well, I, I mean, you, you you gave this example, but but think about the songs. I remember Pandora told me years ago, like it tells you why you like certain things. <laughs> it was like you like melancholy music with X or Y or Z. And you know, when you think about some of these songs, the one that we you know sing out loud, not the jump up and down ones, but they're generally about a breakup or a different situation. So you know, th these are the ones that impact us. They're they're generally not. I don't want to say that they're negative, but they're about difficult circumstances, but these are the ones that you remember most and you sing along with the most in the car and all these. So it's clearly is producing a, it is a creative outlet that comes out of that. Yeah. It's a creative outlet and it's, and it's a source of great connection. I mean, like part of the reason that people listen to those songs over and over. And by the way, the people who, whose favorite songs, their happiest listen to them 175 times. And the people who love their sad songs listen 800 times on their playlist. Um, and they tell our researchers that it, that they associate it with these feelings of like sublime and states of awe and wonder. It's because these, these songs are, they're communicating this fact of we're not in it together. Like this is the state of humanity. You're not alone. We're all together in this. Um, there's something incredibly uplifting and like lifting us out from our own individual selves, um, you know, and connecting to something greater. Yeah, connecting to feelings. That there's a great example of this. Um, th there's a leadership expert I know that a conclusion of his thing plays this video of an Olympic athlete or someone falling, can't finish the race. His dad comes uh, onto the track and, and sort of helps him. And if you if you watch this video in itself, you're like, wow, that is an incredible moment, incredible. And, and I've seen I've seen this both ways. <laughs> He plays it with that song, uh, You Lift Me Up. Um, you know, you've probably heard this song. It, it, it's timed on the thing, and you turn around the room, and everyone is in tears. Like it, same, same clip, but you put the right music to it, and mm -hmm. it just touches <laughs> an emotional chord that it does it other. It's amazing. And everyone's like, I have no idea why I'm hysterically crying watching this video now, but I'm hysterically crying. Yeah. I just, it's funny. The one time the sound didn't work, it didn't, it didn't have that reaction. Right. Right. Yeah. I know. That's why I think music is the highest of, of all the, the different right. arts. Yeah. And even though they're crying, I, I think this is an important point, right? I, I think that's a, I don't think it's a negative experience for them at all. No, no. They're what you're really describing is that state that John Haidt calls elevation. Like yeah. they're not, they're not crying out of sadness. They're crying because they've seen something like unspeakably beautiful. Yeah. Um, the explanation that I've come to after like, really immersing in this whole tradition all these years is that that the you could say the emotional DNA of humanity is to feel that there is 
a garden of Eden that exists um, that we don't really have access to anymore, you know, but we get these glimpses of it. So that video is like a glimpse of Eden and you, and you see it and you're just like overwhelmed by all the possibility and the love that, that you feel is over there. Um, And, and that we aspire to at our, in our best selves. Well, related to that, I know when your father passed away, um, you wrote this beautiful tribute and you shared one of his key life lessons, do beautiful things just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you make time to do that? Or how do you think people can think about what, what that means for them? Oh, yeah. Well, it doesn't really take that much time. <laughs> I mean, some <laughs> of it is is like the simple act of looking out the window and just yeah. noticing how miraculous, like, you know, your backyard, my backyard over there, how miraculous it looks at any given moment. And some of it is thinking of, well, what is the what's the kind of beauty that really lifts you personally up and just making time for it, whether it's music or a walk in the woods or whatever. Um, in my father's case, he was like really busy. He was, he was a doctor and um, a medical school professor and he was constantly studying and stuff, but he also would decide one day that, that French was really beautiful and he just wanted to learn French for its own sake. So he would spend Sundays just learning French. He became immersed fluent at it, immersed in it. And he had so many, different things that he did like that. He decided that he loved to grow. He loved orchids. He just found orchids to be like a really beautiful flower. So he built a greenhouse in our basement and grew orchids and he would go work on them at night after coming home late from the office. So there's always time for the things we find really beautiful because humans are oriented that way. I mean, that's what we really love. Sounds like it requires a a presence though, to be in the present, right? Really enjoying it, right? Yeah, yeah, but I think once you um once you orient in that direction, you don't want to leave you don't want to leave it. Yeah. All right, so this is a uh, uh maybe last question depending on our time here. A multivariant. So it could be professional or, or personal and it could be singular or repeated. But what's a what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from throughout your career? I'm trying to think. I mean, what's coming to my mind is not about a mistake, but it's kind of related to that. So I'll just go with it go with and it. see if there's you no, like it. There's no right or wrong here. Yeah. Okay. I ask myself a lot um, whether I feel like it was a mistake to have been a lawyer for all the years that I was, hmm. you know, like all the energy, all the time that I devoted to law school and seven years of corporate law that I could have been doing something else. So I asked that question a lot. And in the end, I don't think of that as a mistake. Though I don't know. I mean, if I could, if I could go back and talk to my twenty-one-year-old self who was about to go off to law school, I I can't say exactly what I would tell her, but I can say that the experiences I had during those years were so fascinating, and I'm not really sure I would have had the writing career that I did without having spent all that time in the business world and all the different people I met and all of it. So I don't know. I at the end, I don't really regret any of it. I love that framing because I think people struggle, you know, with, with that and going back on these things. And, and and you see people today, like, cause there is a lot of this, do what makes you happy and don't spend a minute outside of that. But I'm not, that doesn't necessarily lead everyone to the same place. Someone recently wrote a piece I saw about the philanthropy saying, if you want to be a philanthropist and do like, go get a job first and build your career. Like she was basically, a, you know, encouraging people that came from a nonprofit world of like, there's not a lot at 22 and no background and no money that you, yeah, you, you, yeah. you might be able to do. It was just a very interesting perspective. You know, sometimes I think, you know, we're in a rush to get, I mean, sometimes you, I, I think you articulated, you need to be, know you are clearly outside of your box to then have the perspective when you know you get in your box. Right. So that is very true. I will say that I, since I've become a writer and it's been a while now, I don't think I ever have a single day where I'm not so grateful for having the work that I do. And I'm not sure I'd be this grateful (laughs) if I hadn't had all those other years doing the wrong thing first, even though, as I say, I kind of liked it while I was doing it. If you had asked me, I would have, I I was mostly happy. Um, But still the, the, the framing was really helpful. Uh, Yeah. I think that is, that's a help. There are so many people I'm sure who are, who are wondering that. So hopefully you're at least help them to think about it in their own in their own way. So where, where could people find your books, quizzes, all things, Susan, where should they go? Yeah. I mean, the best place for all of it is probably my website, which is susankane.net. 
so it's C-A-I-N.net. I'm also on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. And the books are available everywhere. All right. Well, Susan, thank you very much for joining the show. I've, I've followed your work for years and uh, loved having the chance to, to discuss it with you in person. Well, thank you so much. It's great to finally be able to meet. To everyone listening today, you can learn more about Susan and her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and great content such as you heard today. So thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.